All right, Derek, it's been a while since it's just been the two of us recording, Yeah, but I have an idea to kind of spice things up and, you know, do something a little bit different this episode to keep things fresh. Okay, yeah, let's hear it. What's your idea? I'd like to take your face off, take your face off, and put it on my face. Why are there white doves just flying around you now all of a sudden? Eyes without a face. <laughs> anyway, yeah. What's up, everybody? Yeah, welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare with like such a smooth transition into the introduction. Uh, this is a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the uh, the coward, the craven, Derek, and my co-host, the movie monster boy, Gorehound, Aaron, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies like me and horror junkies like Aaron. Yeah, uh, this week we're covering the famous hit song, Eyes Without a Face, <laughs> by Billy Idol. Yeah, now that joke always gets airtime anytime we cover a, uh, a movie that also has a song title or something else associated with the title. But anyway, yeah, yeah, I'm not nervous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're just talking cinema this episode. My name is David Lynch, and this is... Cinema, yeah. But anyway, uh, with that, we are starting a Patreon for the show. Details of that will be available in the very near future on our socials and Facebook and Twitter. They will be pinned there. We will have some bonus content available every month for people who choose to support. And we will have a couple of other options that will get introduced in the near future that could include some more, uh, let's say, community and interactive stuff. So keep your eyes posted there. Uh, we would certainly appreciate any kind of support. Just to give everyone an idea, I mean, that helps cover the costs of our Podbean hosting that we have to pay for. That covers the cost of our uh, recording online suite that we use. That helps cover the cost of equipment when things break and fall apart. I mean, that helps cover a lot of the basic keep the lights on kind of things. So we would definitely appreciate any support. And, you know, with that, there's going to be, like I mentioned, some greater involvement with listeners. So, you know, you guys will be able to have a little more of a voice in maybe what we cover. You know, we will definitely have some adjacent supplemental content. We might even finally get into some television, which we have stayed clear of so far because it doesn't really fit the format of the main show. So, yeah, more information on that will be coming soon but that is something that uh we are excited to be starting and this is kind of a big next step for the show so definitely keep your eyes peeled yeah and uh, in case you're wondering our main episodes will remain the same they'll remain ad free and free to listen to we're just adding extra content for those who would like to support us further financially we appreciate your listenership so stay tuned and stay spooked but yeah, with that, Aaron, how have you been, bud? It's just the two of us again. Yeah, it has been a minute, I guess, since we've had a proper episode with just the two of us. I don't know if things are going fine here. We finally got some snow. The dogs hate it. <laughs> I've mostly been catching up on all of the Academy Awards nominated stuff just to fill in, you know, all the gaps. We have checked out some Kubrick stuff that's played up here, which has been a lot of fun. But I do have 
two very recent horror recommendations for this episode. Cool. Then let's get into it. We're going to move on to our horror recommendation section, like most episodes, where Aaron and I talk about other horror media that we have gotten into lately, be it other movies, TV shows, books, video games, etc. And we recommend it to each other. And hopefully you, our listeners, find something that interests you that you can check out as well. So yeah, Aaron, what are those couple things you've been getting into lately? Yeah. So firstly, I saw Megan, which <laughs> was a lot of fun. Yeah. Katie, you lost your parents. Welcome home. You're my niece. I'm going to do everything I can to make this place feel like home. Just wish I could see them again. I'm not equipped to handle this. I don't even take care of my own plants. I have this project at work. Do you want to see? Yes. Ever since I was little, I dreamed of this perfect toy that would protect a kid from ever feeling lonely or sad. This is Megan. Hi, Megan. I'm Katie. It's nice to meet you, Katie. Do you want to hang out? Okay. Megan, your goal is to protect Katie from harm, both physical and emotional. Is that a doll? Model 3 generative. Android. Megan, for short. I can't believe you made this. I love it. Wanna hang out? Yeah, sounds like fun. Great job. It's nice to have a friend. It's honestly like she's part of the family now. They could be building emotional connections that are too hard to untangle. She's the happiest she's been since her parents died. I won't let anything harm you. Megan, turn off. Recalibrating response model. Katie, I won't let anything harm you ever again. This is directed by Gerard Johnson, who did Housebound, which was a New Zealand-based horror comedy from several years back that I liked. It is written by Akila Cooper, who has done a lot of TV, but she is most known for being the writer of fucking Malignant. So she's got an interesting kind of batshit streak that she's on right now. And I'm very curious <laughs> to see what she does next. Yeah, because I, I don't necessarily know. I haven't watched Malignant yet either. But I, from what I know of it, it is incredibly batshit. It's, bad it's shit, so. so goofy. And I kind of loved it. Allison Williams is the main star of this, obviously from Girls and Get Out. Violet McGraw is her niece, who she is now kind of put in charge of care after her parents die in a car accident. Violet McGraw is in Haunting of Hill House, Dr. Sleep, Black Widow. She's a pretty familiar face right now. Allison Williams is a big shot, smart tech toy designer. And so she's like, cool, I have this niece now in my life that I can't connect with. Let me try this new toy out on her and see what she thinks. And of course, it's the Megan doll, you know, so it's like this smart toy, American girl doll, my size Barbie kind of thing. And of course, it becomes overly protective and starts, you know, murdering people. The doll itself is so fucking cool. Being completely real, I was really blown away by how good the practical execution of this was. The doll itself is played by a little girl named Amy Donald and voiced by Jenna Davis. 
So it is this good, uncanny mix of like an actual little girl with a creepy doll mask on. I didn't realize they had an actual little girl actress as Megan. Yes. And then had someone like dubbing over her, basically. From the previews I've seen, like the voice sounds young enough, but it doesn't quite sound like, I guess, little girl. It sounds a little more mature than yeah, just like a little girl. It sounds a little off. So right? I was wondering that. That's kind of yeah. what this movie does a good job with is kind of the uncanny nature of this thing. The eyes are like not always perfectly straight. The lip sync is always a little bit off. So it still has that uncanny valiness to it. But the voice is that good blend of perfect robotic unsettling, but still kind of smart ass evil. Really, really cool execution. I did do a quick Google search of actually who Jenna Davis is. And she's like an 18 year old Disney child actor but she also is like super popular online like on tiktok and youtube so yes which that kind of brings me to the next thing is i knew that this movie really had a big following on tiktok and it was very memeable right like you saw all the like video stuff of the dance scene and all that right yeah which i didn't realize too that the little girl who actually plays her is a trained dancer yeah so like i guess she actually performed that dance as oh she she does all kinds of you know stand up suddenly terminator style from completely on the ground and that's great lots of on all fours scampering (laughs) around and crawling really fast creepy movement stuff like that yeah that's that's awesome i think you know where i kind of connected with this like i absolutely think this is great intro horror for young people there's not really anything offensive in this the violence is not so over the top where like younger kids couldn't see it you know that's not to say it's not definitely kind of rough at certain points i mean you see people get creamed by cars and i was gonna say in the preview alone it seems like she causes a little boy to get hit by a car at some point so (laughs) yeah um there's definitely like children that get killed in this but it's not so explicit that like young kids can't see it um they've seen way worse shit online by that age but uh, but i get what you mean i i was seeing people compare how like scary it is quote unquote to like beetlejuice yeah it's it's not like like it's it's in that area traumatic necessarily and interestingly enough i think it does a good job of really relating to like the generation of kids that we have now that all came up with their parents largely just handing them an ipad and say here entertain yourself you know that was something with my previous job that i got a good bit of insight into was a lot of parents that are just like look i don't know what to do with my kids anymore like kids don't play with toys necessarily that's just not that big of a thing anymore like dude with us now starting to interact with other parents that are maybe either slightly older than we are or at least we're all millennials raising kids now that happens so much and it's even like with people not that they're bad parents but i just see so many kids just get handed like an ipad or an iphone now and it's funny too because the movie does comment on that you know you kind of see the girl even say like i'm not interested in this like i could care less about this like smart connected toy that you know you basically just end up sitting and playing on your tablet instead of playing with the toy right and finding that line on what is educational what is not what is meant to entertain a child versus just take the place of the parents or the parents can fuck off and go do whatever they need to do what essentially is substituting a parent's attention and care you know which can kind of be 
detrimental long term to a kid's development and their yeah. attachment to things, right? Um, so the movie is very, very pointedly examining these things. It's not trying to be subtle about it either. I mean, it's that is the on the nose messaging of this movie. Oh, yeah, even from the previews, that seems like what it's commenting on. Yeah, it's very interesting, and I think it's very insightful to like where a lot of kids and young parents kind of are right now trying to figure out what does parenting look like nowadays so definitely would recommend it went over my head that allison williams is one of the stars in this she really is just becoming like a horror queen huh between the perfection get out now megan and i saw that she is producer on megan and she's also producing the sequel and starring again in the sequel that they've already announced for megan yeah i mean this being a blumhouse production i mean a blumhouse knows exactly what they're doing as far as their marketing is concerned they have that shit on lock hence how this movie's become such like a tiktok explosion right but they also know like hey if we hand you seven million dollars to make this movie and it grosses 135 okay cool yeah we're definitely green lighting a sequel so they're definitely moving on to i guess megan 2.0 it's already meth three again but yeah it's it's an interesting bridge getting into the movie that we're actually discussing in this episode regarding like the science obsessive who's willing to make their child the guinea pig to kind of satisfy their mad ego right there's some interesting crossover between Megan and Eyes Without a Face that I found to be kind of hilarious too. I have heard stories about people going to see it and the theater just being packed out with like 12 to 17 year olds who, you know, were all there because they saw it on TikTok. And I'm starting to sound like old as fuck, but like that's a lot of it. That's where the marketing is now. Kids are not seeing trailers for it on TV like we did growing up. They're seeing fucking weird out of context clips on TikTok that are like engaging them, you know? But that's the kind of shit that makes me happy that that's still happening. Like theaters getting packed out because like that's how it was for you. And I with the new Star Wars prequels and when the ring came out in terms of horror like that was what it was like it was just theaters packed out with our age group and because like we word of mouth and you know early days of the internet and TV spots and all of that so I'm glad that it's finding new ways to still happen and it's something that's timeless because we can go back and hear our parents talk about the original Star Wars and Back to the Future and how those movies were packed out with kids and teenagers on opening and everything else so yeah there are definitely some studios that I think do the marketing side of it better than others I think I think Universal and Blumhouse especially like that partnership has really done a lot to like get those movies out there I think A24 is pretty good about it as well. But then you look at Warner Brothers and their marketing and execution for so much stuff over the last couple of years has just been so fucking bad. So, I mean, there is a lot to be said about how you are positioning your movie and getting butts in the seats. And Megan is definitely a good example of like, uh, y'all, y'all figured this shit out pretty good. People keep bringing up that this is kind of the Gen Z Blair Witch project right now, which granted, I don't know if it's going to have that much of an impact, but I mean, it's still kind of too soon to say, but it is definitely being talked about and people are starting to see it more. A, there's so much content now that is coming out so fast. Nothing. It's impossible. Nothing (laughs) has the legs 
of a 1999 movie that becomes a viral hit. Yeah. Nothing. No, I agree with you. My fucking parents went to go see Blair Witch Project, and that is not their bag. Blair Witch Project was such a big crossover, kind of everybody went to go see it out of curiosity thing. Even movies that have that quality now, though, the problem is they have their moment, and then they're gone because they're replaced by the next thing so quick, so they don't have time to like really stretch out over several weeks like a Blair Witch does, where it stays in theaters for four or five months you know i mean i I would even argue back when we were just starting college like 2006 2007 2008 even then that whole idea of like a blair witch going that viral was already like it's just not gonna happen yeah i mean there's just too much coming out and it's all moving too quick but yeah especially now there's not time for things to kind of find their space and breathe from a box office standpoint before it's just got to get shoved out to make room for the next thing yeah that's unfortunate but like that is just kind of how it is and even on streaming you have things that go viral and become these big hits and everybody watches them and it's interesting to see what people latch on to and don't but even then it just bird box everybody fucking talked about bird box when it first came out when was the last time you heard anybody talk about bird box right like how many people have watched (laughs) bird box since that initial big giant rush right if you're not there with your algorithm like shoving stuff at you to be kind of front of the list you're not really paying attention to it anymore it just becomes background noise speaking of other thing i wanted to bring up because this is also one that i'm sure by the time this episode comes out it's already going to be like poof out of theaters but i got to see the new film by brandon cronenberg infinity pool nice which was very interesting i don't understand why we're doing this we barely know these people it's one day let's mix things up a bit you're just happy you found your fan club i've been waiting six years for your second book is it coming out soon i'm working on it what do you do for money then he married rich (laughs) (laughs) i actually came here looking for inspiration Mr. James Foster, you'll have to come with us. Here, the punishment for any crime committed is death. What? What did you say? But for a significant sum, we'll build a double to send in for your execution. This is just a little game. I can take some blood. Show me how strong you are. It's really disgusting. You could just sit there and watch it happen. 
I don't think I necessarily jived with it as much as I did with Possessor, which I really, really liked and found intriguing. That's not to say that I didn't really like and admire and have a good time with this movie. This is where, like, I keep saying, and I've said this the last several episodes, where, like, I just wish it did a little bit more with the premise. I wish the story, like, went a little bit further than what you're kind of expecting going in. So many things nowadays kind of meet you right where your expectations are, but then really don't go beyond that. And that's kind of how I felt about this movie as well. The latest thing I saw from Infinity Pool is that image that's going around and kind of becoming a meme already, where it's Mia Goth doing big mommy energy on uh, Alexander Skarsgård, like he's kneeled her on his fours and she has like her foot on him or something, like at a red carpet for this. There's some of that in this movie. Uh-huh. I was guessing there was some big mommy energy in this movie, to be honest with you. There's definitely some of that. So let's start there, right? The stars Alexander Skarsgård from True Blood and and Melancholia, and Hold the Dark, and Big Little Lies. He was just in The Northman and The Kingdom, uh, which I'm very intrigued to start that up. That's a continuation of the Lars von Trier TV show, The Kingdom. But he and his wife, played by Cleopatra Coleman, who I have not really seen in anything before. She's been in some TV stuff, but it's not stuff I've seen. They are on vacation in a fictional kind of Eastern European country. I mean, I guess for context, the movie was shot in Croatia and Hungary. So it kind of has that you don't know exactly like what the deal is with this country. Like, tell me how much you know about Croatia. If you ask anybody like what's going on in Hungary, people are going to be like, wait, what? Huh? So it's it's definitely that kind of country that Americans are just not going to be really aware of. You know, right. but this rich couple is going to vacation at this all inclusive resort. There are definitely elements of those weird pangs of guilt that you have as a lower to middle class American when you go somewhere that's close to third world, if not third world, and you're at this big fancy resort that's very conspicuous consumption all around you. And as soon as you look over the fence, you see like, oh, here's the real poverty that the entire country really lives in. You know, there is definitely some of that ugly American guilt present in this movie. I definitely read where Cronenberg kind of had a real experience with this going on vacation in real life, where some of that influenced this. But the movie follows this couple. They meet up with another couple. Mia Goth is the wife in this other couple. Mia Goth, obviously, from Nymphomaniac and A Cure for Wellness and Suspiria, but obviously right now she's really breaking out as the star of the X trilogy, X, Pearl, and Maxine, right? Which, oofa doof, she is giving another, like, fucking insano performance in this. Yeah, she's, I mean, she already was kind of a scream queen, but she's really, like, kicking it up a notch yeah. with the recent string of movies. Yeah, she's certainly popping right now. They go off for, like, a joyride outside of the resort. Something bad happens. None of this is spoiling anything if you've seen the trailers. It's all kind of laid out there. But basically, like, a crime happens. They get arrested. And the kind of government bureaucrat of this country, played by Thomas Kretschmann, he just kind of gives them an option of, cool, so um, just to let you know, this crime is punishable by death. So either we can go ahead and execute you, or 
since you are, you know, a rich foreigner, um, you can just pay a lot of money and we will create a clone of you that will be executed in your stead. And the clone will have all of your memories and be fully aware of what's going on. Whoa. And uh, okay. <laughs> we will summarily execute this clone of you and you're fine. You can just go about your way. This is just the fee that you pay because you're a rich person. And so it then becomes this kind of whole thing of, oh, so because I'm rich, I can just basically get away with whatever I want, right? And just kind of where that leads throughout the course of the story. It's insanely psychedelic. It is insanely surreal and nightmarish. I mean, just to give you an idea, like there is a fucking scene where they're like death marching Alexander Skarsgård and Mia Goth is lounging on the hood of a convertible with a fucking handgun pointed at him and a bucket of chicken and she's just screaming at him and taunting him while they're driving behind him. Just the movie's full of insane shit. You know, there's definitely a lot of eat the rich sentiment and politics in this, which those are certainly my politics, but it's interesting to see how many movies and TV shows have been really fucking embracing that in the last couple of years. Absolutely a reflection of the Trump era where most of these projects were developed, right? You know, this is kind of that whole thing where like art always reflects the reality that you're living in over course of time and commenting on that. I think, too, this movie also, I think, was fairly effective because Heather and I had just been watching White Lotus on HBO, which is very much dealing with a lot of the same things. It's a lot of just shitty, banal, rich, privileged people going to these all-inclusive resorts and just showing their asses, right? And to varying degrees, they have some comeuppance, but then they don't. Yeah. And this movie is kind of the same way. We're like... Like, do yeah. things actually turn back around on them or not, right? What is actually happening to these characters by the end? You know, how do you feel about that? I mean, that's kind of some of the stuff that the movie is exploring and kind of prodding the audience into thinking about. I'm, I'm, but I'm guessing, like, there's a degree of well, at least one of them getting mentally fucked by the end. I mean, right? yeah, sure, right? You know, I guess, you know, on one hand, like, you'll occasionally have those characters who are, like, scarred for life now and, like, oh, you're never gonna forget whatever this fucked up thing was that happened. On the other hand, money makes a lot of that go away. <laughs> money makes a lot of that yeah, better. but I do agree with you. I think there should be almost, like, an ending to The Witch to more movies with this, like, where it's the ultra-rich being shitheads. Yeah, I think, like I said, we've seen a lot of this over the last couple of years to various levels of success. Right. Parasite. That's a movie we've brought up before. That is a yeah. fantastic exploration of this entire idea and just kind of where a lot of the desire to like achieve that at the cost and expense of other people and going in both directions, the people that already have and the people that don't, how just the naked pursuit of that can be ultimately destructive. Now, that said, I think I'm getting tired of movies where the focus is both sides are bad. We've seen enough movies at this point in the last couple of years, especially where, you know, the irony is the ultra rich, the ultra privileged just kind of end up right back where they started. You know, obviously in real life, we see too often day to day that that is just exactly the case. So, like, where's the satire there, I guess? 
I kind of wish that, especially in horror, if we're going for this whole angle and message, that we start, again, letting some of the, like, societal pressure and steam out, and maybe, uh, you know, taking the guillotine to some people. Again, it's a horror movie after all, so I feel like that's an appropriate thing to say, but, uh, you know what I mean. So, anyway, yeah, like, I, I feel like this movie is certainly dealing with a lot of that. If you have seen Possessor, you certainly know what you're getting into as far as gore, grisliness. I mean, this movie certainly is incredibly visceral and bloody. There is definitely a sexual component to this that is hedonistic on one hand and gross, but also like kind of fucking hilarious in a lot of ways. But yeah, if anything, go see this for the cinematography, which is amazing. Hashtag cinema. Yeah. <laughs> the music, the performances are all great across the board. This really is Alexander Skarsgård and Mia Goth just going full fucking crazy. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I'm very curious to kind of see what some of the discourse looks like this once other people get to see it because it just hit. So by the time this episode is dropping, really, I'm I'm curious to see what people's takes are on it by that point. Right. Cool. So that's all I've got. And we have taken plenty of time. So what have you got? I just got one. And honestly, this will probably be one that both of us can talk about because it's a big one. And, you know, I think we're going to probably make this joke multiple times on this episode. But I really did have like a Martin Scorsese hashtag. This is cinema <laughs> kind of week. I'm Werner Herzog. And this is As much as you make fun of me for that, yeah, you finally, yeah. every once in a while, have those moments where you're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> it's cinema. Mwah. I'm Helen Mirren, and this is... But yeah, like I had kind of like an interesting double feature this week between watching Eyes Without a Face for the podcast episode. But then also I mentioned this, that I tried to sit down and watch this earlier, but my daughter was around and then I realized I was making a giant mistake by watching it while she was around. Cool. I know where this is going. Yeah. Also kind of an apt movie to pair with this. Oh, right? it, it's a great double feature with Eyes Without a Face. So before I introduce my recommendation, both movies tackle identity. Both movies have a star performance that is barely any lines both movies have an obsession with faces yes and what expression looks like on a face and how important the face is to just the human soul so the recommendation i have this week is 1966 swedish psychological drama film and i would argue psychological horror film Persona, not the video game Persona, the series I love so much, but Persona 1966, classic, directed by Ingmar Bergman. In these words, the leading film critics of Europe have honored Ingmar Bergman's new film, Persona. Persona is a knowledge, a terrible knowledge of our loneliness, our estrangement, our inability to reach one another. It is a confession of our fears, of man, of failure, of death. Persona is the drama of a despair, a silence. Far too great to be named. Of life laid bare to the bone. It is a drama of the skin sensitivity 
and of faces and words and ruthless courage. Persona is an illusion shattered. A victory over silence. A new film from Ingmar Bergman, Persona. Yeah, so this movie, and part of the reason why I wanted to watch this movie, and I mentioned this to you, that Ari Aster put out like his top 10 most important quote-unquote cinema movies that inspire his work, or the best movies he thinks are out there. I think it was more, this was like around the time that the sight and sound poll was happening. So we were seeing a lot of people's sight and sound lists around that time. Yeah, and so I saw Ari Aster's, and then I saw like this movie constantly pops up as an influence on David lynch yeah and just a lot of people kind of always go back to this movie and i saw it's on hbo so i sat down and watched it and yeah this movie i totally see why it is regarded as like one of the greatest movies ever made now granted i'm not going to be gatekeepy i think it's fully acceptable that if you sit down and watch this movie and you're like fuck this this is just up its own ass artsy fartsy i get that but i also think that this movie is incredibly important to film but if, if you're the type of person who really just wants to watch movies for like fun escapism that's totally fine you don't have to necessarily sit down and watch persona because persona is not about having fun persona is very much an examination of the human condition and more of the uglier sides of the human condition i would argue honestly like i really dug persona i really think it was a masterpiece and i've been thinking about it for a lot since I watched it earlier this week. The more I think about it, the more I kind of almost think of it in the same way that I think of like early grunge music. <laughs> okay. Yeah, bear with me. That's incredibly important art wise. But like a lot of the people who imitate this and were inspired by this in the same way grunge music is kind of also responsible for like butt rock. I think Persona and films like this are kind of the reason like we get stuff that's kind of up its own ass and like movies that shout, look at me, I'm an important like we talked about with uh, Neon Demon on our last episode, um, which I do like Neon Demon, but that was a point we all brought up. Look at me, look how important I am. And I think a lot of filmmakers and a lot of films watch Persona and think they can do it in the same sure. way, but they don't. And so that's where you do kind of get the more like memeified thing I kind of make fun of you for, Aaron, of uh, cinema, Mon Scorsese, cinema. I'm Spike Lee, and this is... But the thing that's crazy is that Persona never feels like it's like, look at me, look how important I am type of movie. It just kind of is what it is. And granted, I was reading up interviews and like Bergman himself was doing that classic thing that I have to respect, but also drives me up the wall of like, well, why don't you tell me what you think the movie means? He wasn't trying to like say anything or like whatever he's trying to say is irrelevant. It's more worried about how the movie makes you feel is what he's saying. But like this movie has been picked apart over the decades for all kinds of themes from psychology to gender roles and sexuality, queer love story, the idea of duality you see in the concept of persona. I was even reading like an interesting take that this movie is actually about vampirism and the symbology of a vampire. Sure. Yeah. It's fascinating. So like kind of like what persona is about it because it is very much an experimental film that kind of almost doesn't have a plot. The plot is more of a thing to get these two women by themselves in a cabin by the ocean. The basic plot is during a performance of Electra, which that already is kind of hinting at some of the stuff this movie is talking about because there's also a lot of themes of motherhood in this movie too but during a performance of Electra, she just totally freezes up and almost goes catatonic and like stops talking and she's immediately institutionalized 
The doctor does an unconventional method of treatment, think it'll help her, assigns her and her nurse, this young woman who is about to get married, to her summer cottage by the ocean and hopes that just being kind of in this secluded area with just her nurse that she'll open up and she'll begin talking again. And then from there, it becomes a super experimental film. I would say it's almost like a romantic psychological horror film in some ways. And it really kind of goes that route of experimental turns in the same way as like a Mulholland Drive talking about David Lynch and how this movie kind of inspires his work. What you're seeing on screen is not something that's actually happening in the real world necessarily. It's all just moments of uh, symbolism and everything. I don't think I've ever seen a movie where there's an entire monologue where you see the monologue being delivered and it's being delivered off screen and you're just seeing the face and the reaction of one character. Then the film literally like almost rewinds itself and the camera turns and then you see the person who's actually delivering the monologue and they just do the scene over again. Uh But now you're seeing the person actually giving the monologue. And I think so many films would fuck that up and it would just be like, oh, look how artistic I'm being. But for Persona, it works so well and it's such an unnerving scene. And yeah, there's so many close-ups to like the faces of the two characters in this movie. So much more is being spoken with the reactions on their face, what their eyes are saying, and even like mouth twitches and everything else. I know it's very cliche to say, but I saw this movie my senior year of high school. It was uh, TCM, you know, recorded it, watched it later. Watching it on like a 12-inch fucking little TV with a built-in VCR player in my room on the top bunk bed, just head broken apart when that moment hit and realizing like, oh, you can fucking do this in a movie. Yeah. Kind of broke me a little bit. Yeah, and there's more than one scene like that, too. And where the horror really shines at the very beginning, where it's basically the credits are just its own small experimental short, which I do think some of the imagery they include kind of also foreshadow a lot of what's actually going to happen in the movie between like the crucifixion and the spider, the whole killing of a lamb. And then that whole moment where like the young boy wakes up in kind of a morgue setting in a hospital. And then like he kind of sees the image of the two women and goes to touch it. And then the movie kind of blasts into like the wall and it becomes the movie. Like again, shit that I can't believe you could do this in a movie. Yeah. Even in 1966, like as old as this movie is, it's still kind of shocking to see. I do think this is a movie that you can kind of take away whatever themes you want to from it. As much as Ingmar wants to say like, oh, well, like it's more about how you feel. I do think he purposely put stuff in this that he responds to or like affected his life. Uh, I was reading up a little bit about his life and the idea of being rejected by your mother is a big focus in this movie. And he has real life experiences with that. I do think the title of the movie itself, Persona, gives away a lot of what the movie's actually dealing with. The idea of yourself and then your shadow self and like how there are two parts to you and both are halves of a whole and you don't necessarily like one half of yourself well you mentioned jokingly the persona video game it's where a lot of that came from exactly yeah there's a lot to do with self-identity in this movie totally but man the two actresses in this movie are just 
with one delivering basically all the dialogue yeah. and one doing ultimately just a physical performance, both knock it out of the park. Liv Ullman's fucking amazing in that movie. Yeah. 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 But yeah. And I, I think all of it is also kind of given away in the face because there's so much of this movie that is up close and dealing with expressions on a face. But yeah, I argue that this is straight up a psychological horror movie. It probably wasn't categorized as a horror movie when it first dropped. And I don't know if Bergman himself would have put his nose up to the idea of it being a horror movie but it totally is a horror movie to me oh absolutely he's got other stuff that is definitely i would say straight up horror but it it is interesting because there is kind of that threshold that you have to get over partly it is old it is foreign a lot of his movies are black and white they are considered to be super artsy fartsy and you kind of have to climb a few of those hills to meet that movie on its own terms but i think if you do it's absolutely worth that journey because even in a modern context there's so much going on in those movies that is still completely accessible and relevant today and the imagery is still just so fucking striking and unlike anything that you really see people doing today for the most part well, and the thing that also really kind of pisses me off that is also so impressive about this movie is this movie is from 1966 is more progressive than most modern blockbuster type like movies we see in theater here in America. Yeah. Granted, this is a Swedish film, so they are more open with ideas of sexualism and abortion and all of that. But it still just drives me up a wall. Like here we are, what, almost 60 years later from when this movie dropped, this still feels more progressive to an American mindset come the fuck on <laughs> yeah yeah and and again this is a capital i important film in cinema history if it's something you'd rather just not want to watch because you'd rather just have a good time while watching a movie that's totally understandable but like you said aaron if you kind of meet it on the level of this is an art film this is cinema history blah 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 yeah you're gonna see stuff that movies are are still not doing and this is definitely a movie that i don't think ever should be or could be remade This is definitely just one of those timeless kind of movies that any kind of remake would just miss the point completely, I feel like. Yeah, totally. So yeah, that's a perfect point to transition into the movie that we are discussing, uh, which is Eyes Without a Face. Le reflet de ses yeux. De son visage. J'ai rendez-vous avec une amie. Je vous dirai demain. Demain. Il sera trop tard, mon petit. Edith Scobb, dont vous connaîtrez enfin le visage en venant voir notre prochain spectacle, Les yeux sans visage. What is it? Les, les vues sans visage. Oh, I'm not even going to try. Y'all can't wait. <laughs> We're going to fuck up French so bad in this episode. It's going to be awesome. No, I'm letting you do that on your own. I know I'll fuck it up. It's just going to be both of us sounding like fucking Keenan as Pierre Escargo. Oh. And now, all that presents a semi-educational moment. 
everyday French with Pierre Escargot. Oh, oh, oh. enlève ton banjo de mi nombril. Please remove your banjo from my belly button. Well, let's let's get this out of the way already. Yes, the Billy Idol song is pretty good, but it was also in, it was inspired by this movie I read. But instead of it dealing with a father and a daughter, he did it about two lovers. But yes, he basically kind of wrote his song with this movie in mind, from what I I saw. There's definitely way more influences on other pop culture than just that, which we'll get into oh, yeah. in a little yeah, bit. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, like, that's the one everyone's going to think of, because when you Google Eyes Without a Face, more often than not, you're going to see the Billy Idol song and not yeah. the 1960 horror movie. Well, yeah, this was a movie directed by Georges Franjou, based on a novel by Jean Redon from 1960. Uh, so, for context, this came out the same fucking year as Psycho, came out the same year as people tom right so this is kind of the other like end of that triangle as far as kind of three super influential but from completely different parts of the world's horror movies again we're not kidding when we're saying like it's a good pairing with persona because this movie is also pretty artsy fartsy granted I would say this movie is a lot more accessible than Persona because the plot is actually like a plot. You can follow it along. It's easy to follow along. But there is definitely a lot more on this movie's mind about everything than just the idea of someone using face transplant turns someone into a person again. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, this has a lot of the typical horror movie tropes, right? It's got a mad doctor and a dark, spooky old house with a dungeon, innocent women being kidnapped by an evil assistant and body mutilation and a police investigation, right? So it's a lot of the tropes, right? Well, for a 1960 black and white horror movie, it's a lot more violent than I thought it'd be. It it even beats Psycho in terms of on-screen violence and gore, which I don't think I was necessarily prepared for. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, and part of that is due to the fact that censorship and ratings doesn't really work the same way overseas, obviously. But in France at the time, too, like there was not a whole lot of censorship going on. So the amount of violence, you know, and and gore and blood specifically, which this movie's not like overly gory. No. But what was in this movie was incredibly shocking at the time. Well, and I would argue that the violence is minimum, but the violence it uses and it's more of even the idea of the violence it's using is brutal. It's more yeah. effective than a lot of movies that blossom in violence or, or show a ton of gore and violence on screen. I could sit through a slasher movie and I could be dropping bodies every 15 minutes and I'm not going to bat an eye, but like the split second you see where they're literally peeling the face skin off and you know it's all fake and it's all in black 
black and white, but that's still like super more unsettling yeah. in this movie than it is in like a more modern day like gore fest splatter film. And I think that's kind of what makes this so effective. And there's a trick to that, which I'll get to in just a minute. I mean, there is a reason why your brain reacts to that scene the way it does. But I guess to start off, this movie, like Persona, it is old, it is black and white, it is foreign. Yes, you have those hurdles that you have to get over, but I think this movie still has so many modern themes that modern viewers will get something out of this. Like, this is not a movie that feels super dated in a way that you can't relate to. I mean, this movie is still dealing with toxic masculinity, the ethics of experimental medicine, and competence from law enforcement and their failure to really actually do anything and be effective. There is a commentary happening on the idea of modernity and your elders, right? Your parents, your grandparents just clinging to like what used to be and trying to force that way of living, that way of being, those values, that existence onto their children, their grandchildren, right? That is certainly there. There is definitely a queer read to this that I'll talk about a little bit, but there are a lot of modern themes in this movie that are still completely relevant to today. So, I mean, get over those hills, but this is certainly something that I would encourage everybody to watch. The other aspect of this that I'll get into is this movie has an insanely layered pedigree to it. So, again, if we're talking cinema. I'm Aaron Storkin, and this is... This is cinema. There is so much (laughs) shit going on with this movie that is important. And I'll talk about that in a second. So it also tackles a theme of like animal cruelty and like, hey, does the dog die dot com? Uh, maybe question mark. <laughs> like, there's definitely one scene where he's kind of operating on dog, but the dog is still alive. But then he's also like, it shows that he's been experimenting on these dogs. But then it, uh, again, like Persona deals with the timeless idea of identity and what actually matters in your identity in terms of the daughter character and how her father views her. Like, her father is so obsessed with what she used to look like and her beauty was prior to this accident. And then like in the process of her being sheltered and having to wear this mask, her identity gets broken and she almost becomes like this magic kind of person. And we'll get more into that. But the other thing too is, uh, and I would argue that this movie is definitely a lot more watchable than Persona. Again, it's more accessible. And I would say like even people who have a harder time going over those hurdles of art movies or foreign or black and white, I would still encourage you to watch at least this movie because it is a great watch. It's only 90 minutes long. Perfect runtime for a horror movie. And you get to see the birth of so many, not just horror tropes, but tropes of movies. Like, yeah, we had the gag at the beginning of the episode of, uh, from Face Off, but Face Off it pretty much wouldn't exist without this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Some of John Woo's themes, like even that stupid idea of doves flying everywhere, people have credited the mo- end of this movie to like inspire John Woo with that, including a lot of that in his movies. I guess I'm not super surprised by like the reception in America. Yeah, it got marketed in a way that was 
unjust and it got edited down in a way that was kind of stupid. But the other thing that I guess I shouldn't be surprised is that it actually also like French critics initially were lining up to like put this movie down for some of the more extreme taboos it was dealing with. There was also a lot of shitting on the director too. Yeah. There is this French notion of the tradition of quality that they talk about in like French art and literature and filmmaking and music. And that's a lot of what the new wave was pushing back against around this time. But there was just a lot of the like smug attitude of we think you're a better filmmaker than this. Why are you, you know, resorting to like such frivolous trash for this movie? And his entire take was, I like this shit and I think you should take it more seriously. That's why I'm trying to like actually make a legitimate horror movie that people will take seriously, you know? Well, and it's funny because then I was reading, I mean, it took a few years, but relatively quick. Then those same critics were all lining up again to basically disown their first opinion and elevate this movie. Yeah. 20 years later, it's the same as everything else. Yeah. And again, it's just come on. Even today, like with the nominations for the award shows, horror is still getting the shaft, even though some of the best movies from this year were horror movies. But yeah, so it's interesting to see that reaction overseas, not just here in America. But yeah, this movie is so much more than just the traditional idea you get of like a a horror movie. It's more than just a splatter fest and all that, because again, the violence is at a minimum, but the violence that is on screen is effective. Again, the face removing scene is even now black and white 1966. It's still effective as it was back then today after all the like crazy shit we've seen in movies since then. And just so much owes to this movie. I mean, we wouldn't have face off, y'all. We wouldn't have face off. (laughs) I'd like to take his his face off. You want to take his face? Yes. His face off. Eyes, nose, skin. It's coming off. The face... Okay, so let's kind of wrap back around and let's start at the beginning, I guess, just for a little bit of context. So, like I mentioned a second ago, the French were not really known for horror movies. That was just not their thing at all up until this time. You had kind of the earliest experimental filmmakers like George Melier, people like that, who kind of operated in a fantastical sci-fi phantasmagorical light horror kind of vibe right and that whole kind of a genre but really again more of a vibe is all kind of just referred to as fantastique and you had people who kind of operated in that realm but largely that was considered a minor genre that whole notion wasn't in step with the tradition of quality you know the french had so there was already disdain for this type of work they just didn't really dabble in it like the most you had were like what we would today call thrillers diabolique is a good example of that but it really wasn't until you know kind of that jess franco era a lot of the french extremity stuff that was coming out in the 2000s when we were growing up you know the french did not necessarily do a ton of horror now what you ended up having was a lot of 
kind of holdover from the German Expressionism era of the 20s and the early 30s, which basically all died with the rise of Nazism, right? Um, and you had a lot of those filmmakers from Germany all split and leave Germany, you know, and either came to America or went to France or went to England, and they kind of brought some of that tradition with them. Anyway, this movie came out during the French New Wave era, which was very young. It was a lot of young filmmakers kind of pushing back on a lot of that tradition of quality filmmaking. Definitely a lot more modern stories, a lot more stories about youth, a lot of edgier genre stuff too, but again, nothing horror. A lot of New Wave filmmakers respected Georges Franju, but Franju was just not part of that scene. And again, critics at the time this movie came out were just very tepid at best. You know, they had the kind of mindset that Franju was above this, right? And he should be doing more serious work with his time and his effort and everything. So even from the beginning, there has always been this weird notion that horror as a genre is like a lesser thing. And what I find interesting is that whole idea, and this persisted for decades, the whole idea of, but you're a respected writer, creator, etc. Why are you dipping your toes into such filth, such a unreputable genre? And we don't really have that attitude nowadays, right? If fucking PTA or Tarantino or Celine Sciamma, any of these kind of people announced, oh, I'm making a horror movie, I don't think anybody would bat an eye. Matter of fact, it would probably be the opposite. You probably have a lot of people saying like, yes, I really want to see what a fucking horror movie looks like from Celine Sciamma. Yama, right? <laughs> you would really have a lot of people lining up to say, like, yes, give me the Greta Gerwig horror movie. Yes, give me the, like, Damien Chazelle horror movie. I, I think there would be way more excitement to see these more modern, young, artsy-fartsy directors, the, the very, like, A24 audience getting into horror. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't have the same kind of derision that they had back then and just disrespect for the genre. Yeah, so in preparation to with this episode, I found a pretty good essay, and it's actually on Criterion.com. It's called Eyes Without a Face, The Unreal Reality. Um, it was written by David Kalat, and that's spelled K-A-L-A-T, if anyone's curious. Um, it looks like they published it on Criterion.com back in October of 2013, but this piece, rather, originally appeared in the 2004 DVD release from the Criterion collection of Eyes Without a Face. I'm going to probably quote this article a couple times in this video, but like kind of that idea you were saying, Aaron, here's where I'll start the quote. But no French filmmaker had yet attempted a full-blooded horror picture of the kind being made so profitable in England and America. Jules Borkin set out to be the first producer to cross that Rubicon. I'll skip ahead on the article to your point, and I quote from the article, most French directors would have been insulted to be offered this job, but Franju, having grown up on the films of the silent era, relished the chance to make his own contribution in the genre of the fantastique. And then I'll skip ahead a little bit more. Uh, and this is like where apparently the producer Borkin kind of gave these limitations right off the get-go. Here's again where I'll quote the article. Borkin added, don't show animals being tortured. That upsets the British. Yeah. Also, nomad scientists, since the Germans are touchy about the whole Nazi doctor thing. This Borkin said while handing Franju a project about a mad doctor who tortures animals while cutting off women's faces. Yeah. And I believe <laughs> like, the other part of that was like, don't do too much blood and gore because that'll offend yeah. the French censor. 
friend centers. Meanwhile, yes. like yeah. that's literally the entire text he's wanting to do because he sees the popularity of horror, especially in America, and is wanting to cash in on that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fascinating to me that, but I mean, despite those limitations, instead of being like a, a giant what if or what could have been, a friend Jew was able to work around that and still put out capital C cinema. I'm Jody Foster, and this is masterpiece that we still talk about to this day um and has been picked apart and everything i mean shit it's on the criterion collection and it's, yeah. it's being treated as like this classic work of art now so to, i guess to give you a little bit more background on george franju himself because he is a very important figure in french cinema he and Henri Langlois founded the Cinémathèque Française in 1937, which that is the biggest, most important film archive in France and possibly all of Europe. He also worked as a film archivist and finally became a director in 1949. So, I mean, he had like a whole other career in film, but not filmmaking before this. And he started off doing documentary shorts. Those shorts were very popular. I mean, he has one specifically called Blood of the Beast, which was about the like brutal nature of slaughterhouses, right? So it was kind of yeah, juxtaposing I, slaughterhouse footage <laughs> with kids playing yeah. on playgrounds. Yeah, I, I looked up that one. I didn't watch it, but I like read about like what it actually was. And just an idea of like a Parisian suburbia peacefulness of children playing and then butchering cattle. It's just yeah. like, okay. His first feature film, Head Against the Wall, is kind of a spiritual predecessor to this movie. Interesting. It's about a man who is committed against his will and being treated by a doctor who really only uses outdated draconian methods, who is also played by Pierre Brazur from Eyes Without a Face. And he would go on to only do a handful of other movies. He wasn't a super prolific director. Other stuff that he's known for, Judex, which is, you know, Saturday matinee serial adventurer, crime solver kind of story. It's fun. I've seen it. And then Spotlight on a Murder, which I have heard of. I would like to watch this one. It is about a bunch of siblings whose dad supposedly dies, but they can't find the body. He has this giant mansion that they're going to inherit they want to sell and get the money from but they can't because they don't have the body so then it's like shit we got to take care of this place for five years before the trust flips over to us and one by one they like start getting killed and knocked off so that sounds like it's a lot of fun is it just fuck you dad the movie pretty much yeah (laughs) jean redon started as a journalist later became the communications director for warner brothers france right he wrote several screenplays but really is only known for for this novel, not any of the screenplays he wrote. Again, the novel is Le Yu Sans Visage from 1959, which this film is an adaptation of. And like you mentioned, the producer, Jules Borkin, secured the rights to the novel because he wanted to dabble in horror. The novel was adapted by another pair of well-known crime fiction writers from the time, Pierre Boileau, Bu Pierre Boileau. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narsajak, uh, which they were known under the pen name Boileau Narsajak, their draft significantly shifted the focus of the story from the doctor to Christian, kind of as like the main POV character that you're following. In the original novel, the doctor was a fucking drunk 
the assistant character was this fucking ghoul who raped the corpses of the victims. Woof. Yeah, I'm glad they kind of yeah. didn't include that. Yeah. The father gets arrested at the end, and then the daughter, like, sees what's going on, and she commits suicide, like, on the spot. So a lot of that stuff obviously got dropped. Yeah, the honestly, like the way the film ends is it's so I, much I better, like a lot right? more. Yeah, it's such a better ending. But yeah, like for these two guys, these crime writers, they didn't do a whole lot of screenwriting necessarily. But this is one of the few examples of a screenplay that they adapted. They also did Spotlight on a Murder, which is part of the reason I want to see it. But anyway, these guys are most well known for writing the original novels that would then become Clouseau's Diabolique and Hitchcock's Vertigo. Like, those are based on their work. And weirdly enough, too, their novel Choice Cuts was adapted into fucking Body Parts from 1993, starring Jeff Fahey. Weird aside, Vertigo is yet another movie that I see. It's interesting, has a, a weird tie to this movie. But Vertigo, along with Persona, are on a lot of those influential lists of, totally. like, again, David Lynch, Ari Oster. Like. Well, I don't know how much attention you've ever really paid to, like, polls and all that kind of bullshit. But Vertigo, for the last decade, was the number one greatest movie of all time according to that same sight and sound poll. Uh, this isn't a spoiler. I'm very much planning on watching Vertigo as well. I've been wanting to check it out because I just keep seeing it pop up more and more on how much it's influenced a lot of people's work, and I will probably bring it up on a future episode soon. Yeah, look, there's been a lot of whiplash against Vertigo in the last couple of years especially, but like, oof a doof, I think that movie is still very interesting, especially in like, let's have a conversation about modern masculinity and possessiveness of women and everything else. I'm curious to kind of get some of your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, and I'm curious to see like what this whiplash has been. So like once I watch it, we'll we'll talk. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, this novel was adapted. The director himself, as far as like his style was concerned, he was very influenced by surrealism. Like he was friends with surrealists like Andre Breton, who was widely regarded as like one of the pioneers of that entire movement, right? So Frangie was really primarily interested in being more of a visual stylist and really more concerned with like the mise-en-scene of the movie rather than like being so worried about the plot or the performances or whatever. It's interesting you say that because the title of this article that I mentioned earlier is called The Unreal Reality. This is jumping ahead to the actual performances, but he actually even quoted Franju himself said of the actress who portrays Christiane is she is a magic person she gives the unreal reality. And that's the interesting thing is both this and Persona, I would argue, are surreal films, yeah. but they're different types of surrealist art, whereas Persona is a lot more of the experimental, like nonsensical dream aspect of surrealism. This feels more like the almost magical world, more nightmare world, but still has grounded characters and plot otherwise. And you find this a lot, I feel like in older movies of black and white, where it almost there are certain scenes that feel a lot more like a stage play that's just being recorded on a camera and there is a little bit of that like when characters are just talking to each sure. other in a scene but a lot of the scenes even if it was on like a sound stage which I don't know how much this movie actually was on stages or anything like that even just where moments where they're actually out in like the countryside of France or near the city or anything it feels dreamlike 
that fucking cemetery that they go to a couple times in this movie feels like something out of a nightmare. Yeah, crypts are fucking weird, man. You grew up in New Orleans. I grew up basically going down there all the time. The idea of a crypt is like such a weird fucking thing to me still. But like beyond even the idea of a crypt, because these kind of cemeteries do exist. Hell, like there's one kind of close to my house where it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't make sense. This is where you would put a cemetery. You could tell it's not taken care of well. Yeah, It's so strange because like half the graves are like really beat up and old looking and it's like under a highway or it's you're out in the middle of nowhere on a road trip and then all of a sudden like the woods clear for like a, a second and there's two square miles of just this nondescript cemetery and then that's it that's kind of what this cemetery is in this movie is it's just kind of out in the middle of nowhere and what feels like a dreamland and i think it's more grounded surrealism in this movie but there's definitely a magical surrealist edge to it as well especially by the end yeah the other kind of big thing about this, and this goes to what I mentioned a second ago, when you were talking about the surgery scene being so effective today. Again, with France not really having a history of horror films, there was not really any set standard or line or like what was considered to be like enough, not enough, too much, right? You know, Franju himself didn't really consider this film to even be horror. That's how much of a stigma horror had at the time. He said it was more of an anguish, a quieter mood than horror, more internal, more penetrating. It's horror in homeopathic doses, right? Like, <laughs> that's such a. <laughs> it's all the shit that we hear now when people refer <laughs> to things like, oh, well, Get Out is not really a horror movie. It's an elevated thriller, right? Uh, yeah, I, f- I hate the term elevated horror that's been thrown around more recently horror is horror and and just like any genre there's shit and there's really good movies and the thing is too it's hard not to use that term because other people understand things with that term right like they understand things by that term if that's how you describe it so it's just kind of one of those unfortunate things Where like yeah that whole idea is kind of nuts but that's that's where they were at the time right yeah like obviously like eyes without a face and persona have a lot more depth to them than say like halloween five sure yes but it's all horror the reason why that scene works and that's one of the scenes in this movie that the movie is most known for because it's the most shocking graphic thing in the movie it's the entire juxtaposition of all of the documentary work that franju had done before then right this cold clinical matter of fact type of filmmaking that is being juxtaposed against this crazy insano story that he's bringing to life but you're right this whole scene is extremely clinical and just matter of it fact. feels like you're just watching a medical documentary right exactly but and it's like- a scene of a mad doctor fucking peeling a girl's face off like a live woman's face off that they've abducted by the way yeah it's such a small detail that i really appreciate it because i've been in bedside procedures and emergency surgeries when i used to work as a floor nurse in an intensive care unit it's such a small detail but the idea of using those they almost look like scissors but they're actually just clamps yeah they're medical clamps and using multiples of them like 12 of them around a certain part of skin you're trying to cut open or something that's such a small detail but that's actually kind of accurate granted it would be on an incision to like remove a tumor or like (laughs) operate on an organ and not using them all around a a whole face off (laughs) yeah but that weird idea of he's doing small cuts and having her use those clamps to kind of stretch the skin out to keep it intact 
is such a weird detail that's actually giving some credence and believability to the scene that you're right is otherwise fucking insane. Yeah. So it breaks your brain, <laughs> right? Because what you're watching is absolutely bug nuts, but it's being presented to you in this very clinical, matter-of-fact, Nat Geo kind of way. And so that whole juxtaposition just kind of throws you off. Well, to take it a step further, this whole scene is built around a film that is exploring all these other aspects, but also has so much dreamlike quality to it. But then jump from that, the clinical nature of it is so like jarring that you're kind of not expecting it. Yeah. To that point, audiences in Europe were absolutely not ready for that scene when it came out. <laughs> Reportedly, <bet. laughs> people were fucking fainting and vomiting in the theaters during that moment. But yeah, it's kind of funny that despite the producer being like, cool, you need to like neuter the fuck out of this entire story. It's all still there. And this is a perfect example, too, of things that are explicit. We literally see the doctor peel this person's face off versus things that are implied and inferred and hinted at. It's never outright said that the doctor is the reason why the original wreck happened that disfigured his daughter, but we know it is, right? You can absolutely see this guy who is, again, the picture of God complex medical doctor, which that's perfect, exactly what you want, having a fucking freak out moment while he was behind the wheel, you know, or like lecturing his daughter while behind the wheel that caused the accident. You can totally buy either of those things. Like, you know, absolutely he's the cause of that wreck and the guilt he feels for doing that is like what's driving a lot of this obsessiveness you know obviously it's not just well i'm a doctor this is what i do it's all disguised in yeah. that bullshit but it's very much like a oops i fucked up i gotta make this right but this is the only way i know how to do it because i am fundamentally fucked in the head while i really liked reading through this uh essay i actually disagree with david on this notion because he's quoted as saying like motivated by guilt and love and i don't necessarily think that's true i think maybe like that's the excuse he's using and maybe even the excuse he's giving himself agreed but i think he's such a perfectionist and kind of a monster that like he can't handle his daughter's beyond quote unquote fixing he can't handle that this surgery keeps failing but like he becomes so obsessed with it that killing or abducting innocent women like there's no amount of women he can go through until the surgery is perfected so i don't think he's motivated by guilt and love i think he's motivated by ambition and perfection and ego oh yeah absolutely i mean that and ego yeah to the point where even in the movie, his daughter, when she's basically exposing him, says, I'm your perfect guinea pig. Yeah. I was handed to you as your perfect guinea pig. So that's where I really think I disagree with this article on like the motivation. And to kind of go further with your notion, too, I mean, they are, I say they, the doctor and his assistant, Louise, which she is a very interesting figure that we'll get to in a second. He's absolutely only concerned with, in air quotes, fixing his daughter. He does not actually give a shit about her right it's very much about christian's beauty being like the only thing that he considers of value right like this is my daughter this is her only currency that currency is now taken away and i have to fix that he is only obsessed with restoring her to the perfect little doll that he wants her to be this is especially his way of i'm gonna fix you the way i want you to be not the way that you are which is a lot of where Christian, that is her arc through this movie, is just kind of accepting that, oh wait, so I can't be myself anymore? 
Because the doctor straight up says, like, cool, so I did all the paperwork, you're declared dead, now you get to just pick a new face, new identity. It'll be fun, right? And it's like, no, I. But what happens to me? Like, I want to be me. I had ambitions, I had plans. Like, what the fuck, dad, right? <laughs> yeah. The unilateral decision-making there is mind-boggling, but it's just all out of his sense of, I have to control and manage the situation, and that means also controlling and managing the people around me. Yeah, I'm talking about toxic masculinity and the father knows best. It's interesting you bring up the faking her death because if you had any question of whether or not this is a horror movie, the very opening of the movie is a horror movie because first off, the soundtrack itself and the kind of theme you keep hearing throughout the movie, specifically like his assistant when she's scouting out women to abduct, but it also plays here at the beginning when she's getting rid of the body. It's that body that's like in an overcoat and you can only kind of see a little bit of its face and you can tell that it doesn't have a face. The face has been cut off. I love it, yeah. It's in that trench coat. Trench coat, yeah. With the collar pulled up and a scarf on and sunglasses and a hat. I mean, it's basically dressed up like the Invisible Man. And then you just see the faintest hints of meat with teeth. Yeah. And I do love that the soundtrack, especially that overall theme that you hear throughout the film, has almost like a carnival tone to it because it's almost like a come see the sideshow freaks kind of feel to it. Which, granted, this movie never is problematic or transgressive in that regard which I appreciated but there is a little bit of that idea and then yeah she dumps the body in the river that whole like backdrop when she like stops the car and dumps the body that feels like it's a nightmare like the scene of a nightmare in the background so you get that surrealist edge to it at the very get-go so yeah there's no doubt about it that this is a capital H horror movie as much as we want to say like how important in cinema history this movie is but yeah that whole dressing up the corpse was creepy and effective and the idea of what they're actually going to do with that corpse is really upsetting like once you get through like the whole funeral and then they return home and you find out like what's actually been happening with Christiane. Yeah. I think too, you know, another theme of this movie that I mentioned earlier is kind of this whole idea again about transition into a more modern phase of society, right? Like we see these moments where the war is still kind of lingering in the background. Like there's that moment where they stop and look up at the airplane while they're burying the body. Yeah. There's all these constant reminders that the idyllic life you had is gone. You know, you can't go back to that. The daughter that you had is now fundamentally no longer that same person. And even if you try to fix just her face, the inner trauma is never going to go away. She is older. She's no longer a child. You cannot manage to control her the same way. Yeah, she was engaged. Yeah, and the other victims that we see in this movie are young college women that are modern city girls living their lives, doing their own shit, going to college. And yet, Christiana's kept at home, out in the fucking sticks, away from all of that, right? Like, it's very much about kind of controlling her entire sphere. I mean, even to the point, like you said, she's engaged but she's engaged to like her father's assistant which really just seems like it's done out of proximity and convenience more than anything because do we really ever see either of them attracted to each other she seems like she's kind of in love with him though but maybe i get the idea that it's more an attachment thing because he's maybe the only person who's given her any time of day that's true and we never really see him explicitly with the police really show any actual oh my god i love her so much we need to save her you have to help me it's more just about like 
I feel bad for this girl. We need to figure this out. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's way more from that angle. I hadn't considered that, but you're right. Yeah, it's way more <laughs> from the standpoint of I have a friend who is in trouble. I need to help her. Not, oh my God, my love that I am engaged to that I'm going to marry is in trouble. She's missing. Like, he seems very fucking level headed and calm, all things considered, that his fiance has disappeared, right? Well, and ultimately, what you think that how the movie's going to end where he's going to get exposed the doctor yeah by like the assistant getting the police involved and the police figuring it out it's a false finish in a way like because that's not how it actually ends and christiane actually ends things on her terms which i actually really like that subversion because you think it's going to be like her partner that does it with the police but that fails and but also not only does it fail not because they tried their best either like Again, going back to what you had hinted at, one of the other themes this movie shows is like once again failure of authority, law enforcement being incompetent as fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and not only being incompetent as fuck, but being reckless as well. Yeah, <laughs> getting another innocent girl abducted, which they seem to like not care about her at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, no, they think it's a great fucking plan. They all are like patting yeah. themselves on the backs, being like, "God, we're fucking geniuses, aren't we?" Got him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just the like wild recklessness of the police in this to be like yeah cool great idea it's like the hot dog squad with btk yeah really (laughs) but yeah like to branch off of all these ideas there is an interesting queer read on this story that i have heard before the idea again of the doctor telling her with no sense of fucking irony at all just very matter of factly being like cool so i declared you dead and now you can pick a new name new identity and she's like no i don't want that i want to be who i already was right like i want to be me or i either want to die exactly right me or let me die yeah and again he's only f- concerned about fixing in air quotes what he perceives to be broken about her instead of just letting her be who she is right or like giving her any kind of choice in the matter it very much reads as hey my daughter who is not necessarily um let's say up to my norms right you don't necessarily fall in with what you know traditional uh let's say female teenage behavior should be quote 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 quote. so yeah let me put you next to this boy and y'all will like each other because that's what is going to happen and yeah you're gonna find a new name and a new identity and we're gonna fix all these things about you we're gonna like let's just use the word deprogram you right we're gonna fix this problem that you're having like I'm, i'm talking around all this but you understand what i'm saying that entire idea of I need to fix my queer child is very much a read on this story as well. Just the like struggle to keep your identity and keep your own autonomy. And I mean, that's so much what this movie is dealing with is your face is the key to your identity and other people recognizing you and outward expression and all this kind of stuff. So like losing your face is losing your identity. It is the obliteration of your personhood and for your parent then to say, I'm going to fix you. It takes all that away. And I think that's a very appropriate, relevant read because I think any movie, again, with Persona 2 also tackling the idea of identity and what is identity, I think just that naturally is a timeless read for let me fix you queer child because the idea of like a parent not fixing a child or fixing is again a bad word. Like if you're doing it out of love. That's why I kept saying like, 
swish wish air quote air quote yeah like but helping a child out of love with an actual legitimate problem is not fixing them out of your own ego yeah. or like what you think they should be or what you right? want them to be yeah because like if you truly love them you would let them be who they strive to be who they want to be who they are instead of pushing all these ideas of what you think they should be onto them and which is exactly what he's doing in this movie to her again the idea of identity in the face and like the face is the most important part with him being the type of do they ever specify exactly what kind of doctor he is not really and this is also yeah, kind of he back just, in the day where like you were a doctor to medical yeah. doctor <laughs> in air quotes yeah you had me watch another movie, which we may bring up in a bit, that's a lot more sleazy than this movie, but also deals with kind of a similar theme, where the doctor actually is explicitly stated to be a plastic yes. surgeon. But like this movie, it's more of just Dr. TM, he can do everything. Yeah. And the the wild thing I thought with the idea of him being a doctor, that again, I kind of learned about through reading this article on the Criterion website was what actually was cut out of this movie for the American release is kind of crazy because it kind of also goes back to even what we discussed with Blood Diner, where besides cutting the operation scene and then like doing like a, a fade to black a lot sooner than when you actually see any kind of gore, the other scene that they wanted to cut, and I think they did for the American release, was that scene where he is interacting with a kid, yeah. that young boy, where it does show him have a little bit of humanity, at least directly with the child. And granted, it, it's all just a front. Yeah, it definitely comes off as, oh, you're very mechanical about this. Yeah. Yeah, but like when he's actually caring for the child, he's at least putting forth an effort to be like friendly to the child. But also that was cut out of the um, U.S. print just because of the idea of the villain having any sense of humanity to them, which again, we talked about with Blood Diner uh, about the two brothers having any kind of humanity towards them and them being the villains. And so it's interesting that that was the line that this movie crosses as giving any kind of sympathetic scene to the villain yeah. of the movie, which I, I do agree. The doctor is the absolute villain of this movie. He is the horror monster in this movie even though his daughter at least maybe in marketing or on the surface seems like the Frankenstein but the thing I really do appreciate also is that this movie really doesn't go that route at no point you think she is the monster she is always I would say the protagonist but she's also the most sympathetic character in this movie the whole way through and the movie makes no effort to make the doctor anything but the villain well it's still kind of that flip of what appears outwardly monstrous is not always that and the things that appear to be perfectly fine and normal turns out yeah. they are the thing that you should actually fear. Which, what was wrong with the little boy in that scene? They do the finger test and the little boy fails it. And then he's like, we'll fix the boy. Like, trust me. And then when he walks out of the room, him and his sister are like, well, he's fucked. And then they just kind of walk off. I have no idea what to think of that scene, honestly. Does the boy have like a brain tumor? I did think about that scene for a little while because that's the one thing in the movie that I'm still perplexed by. You get the impression that the kid is maybe perfectly fine and he is just purely fucking with his mother for the sake of I'm a child. But I have no, I have no, yeah. idea. I have no idea really like what to think of that scene. But then they walk out of the room and the doctor's and, like, just like, like yep, the child. He's ruined for life. Can't do anything about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. like, that was the only part of this movie that Throw didn't really away. make sense to me. So let's shift gears a little bit to Louise, who is the doctor's assistant slash secretary slash surgical assistant slash maybe love i think they were sleep I, I think they were sleeping with each other it's interesting because yeah. very rarely do you have a hench woman in a movie yeah you know right? also contrary to the norm of this character archetype she's not ugly she's not deformed 
on the outside, at least not any longer, as we learn, right? Like, he fixed her face. And, like, she's acting like a surrogate mother oh, as yeah. well. I mean, so that, that's exactly to my point a second ago of what seems perfectly fine on the outside is twisted and warped and spiritually and psychologically fucked up on the inside, right? Which is why she works as the fisher, the one who's going out and checking the traps and bringing people back because yeah. of course other women would trust another woman but like that's such a clever subversion that like yes. even seems clever today and this was being done in 1960 yeah i really actually love that louise is the one who really does the dirty work yes i find that fascinating yeah and she also clearly desires and wants them to be this family unit right with the doctor and christian what's interesting is that that's a lot of what's driving her loyalty. A lot of what's driving her loyalty is the fact that the doctor did fix her face and she feels obligated to like give back to him. And she definitely kind of has this weird kind of cult mentality with him as well. Like she's 100% bought in with his ego and his abilities and everything else. It's also very clear that the doctor does not reciprocate any of that. No. <laughs> he sees her basically as no different than his dogs. And it's really interesting because that pearl collar is definitely like a dog collar. Right. Yes, it is. Yeah, there is definitely some underlying shit happening with that character. But I find her to be fascinating because she is always in the moment on the prowl. She is constantly just alert. You know, she is yeah, ready to pounce at any moment. And yet the one time that she needs to actually react is the moment she gets taken out. Yeah. Yeah. And the two more things about her that I, I appreciate kind of going again with the dog collar imagery with her wearing the pearls. I like how the movie explains why she needs to always be wearing them because like the doctor didn't fully perfect the whatever surgery he's been doing because like she still has that loose flap of skin on the neck yeah so she like to hide that they have the pearl necklace but then the other thing i really enjoy about her is i think the trope we would be used to or we would think would be happening is that like oh she's jealous of all the attention christian gets from her dad and she wants more attention but she's really not because she does love christian and she is supporting of that's her the and thing that want her to like get fixed right she He's supportive all the way. And that's why I like Louise as the henchman or the henchwoman in this case more than the typical trope of what it would be yeah. of just, oh, she's jealous of Christiane for taking away the doctor's attention. And she's not. She wants Christiane to accept her as the mother now. And when you, you do say like that scene where she needs to actually act and she doesn't, and that's how she gets taken out. I think it is because it's Christiane doing it. And this is the one moment where she can't really react yeah. because, you know, and maybe in a weird fucking way, even if it's not necessarily love but it's more just this uh, obsession of her being her new mom causes her to hesitate yeah. and that like hesitation is what ends it and i do love and this is skipping ahead and obviously we're talking kind of towards the end i do love how christian kills her is by stabbing her in the neck kind of where where that scar is yeah that scar is yeah that's very appropriate but yeah no louise is a fascinating character in a movie that already has two other extremely fascinating characters yeah Two other things I wanted to kind of mention, because the more I dug into these, the more I was just like, holy fucking shit. Yeah, again, this movie has an insane pedigree to it. The other two big factors in this movie, in terms of like it being memorable and effective, just kind of having more weight to it, right? The first thing is the cinematography. 
camera work in this movie is fucking awesome. There is some incredible imagery in this movie that sticks in your head that is incredibly beautiful in the way that, you know, cinema gifs are when you see them on Twitter or something like that, right? This is cinema. I'm Mira Nair and this is... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just like the imagery of Christiane in the mask with all the birds flying around her. Just shit like that. Love it. Oh, right? that, I mean, I'm clowning on the idea of hashtag cinema, but like, really, that that is cinema. Yeah. Like, I even texted you. I was it's just so like, fucking good. okay, I get it. <laughs> I love the scenes with her and the dogs. Like, there's a lot of interesting shit going on there. But yeah. the cinematographer, Eugene Schufton, super fucking interesting backstory. He was a Jewish cinematographer and special effects artist. He started his career in Germany in the early 1920s. So, like, literally the beginning of movies this guy is working. He fled Nazi Germany to France in 1933 and moved to the U.S. in 1940. So, not only, like, was he by that point, like, known as a cinematographer, he has a couple of major technical innovations that he's responsible for, most notably the Schufton process, which was basically, like, pre-matte painting, pre-blue screen, where he devised this entire method where you would use mirrors and you would shoot a miniature, like a miniature village or building or landscape. And then through the use of mirrors, you would simultaneously shoot your actors at exactly the right distance and scale to put them into that miniature scene. Is that what he does in this movie? At he all? doesn't really do that in this movie, but it's something that he did in Fritz Young's Metropolis. It's a process mm-hmm. that was done in basically every fucking movie until you had the introduction of matte painting and certainly blue screen, right? So what was used in this movie? Because like I had mentioned earlier, there does feel like there are scenes where like it's a lot more fantastical in the background that it feels like they're not actually like on a location or anything. No, I mean they they are. A lot of it is just the lighting wow, okay. itself. There's a lot of shadow work. There's a lot of unnatural <laughs> lighting. 1960 France must be a spooky place then. Oh yeah. Well, I love the opening credits where all you're seeing are these trees along the side of the road caught in the headlights. Dude, the trees in that opening scene they look like traditional nightmare. Right. No leaves on the tree. Like, but to yeah. also fuck with it. First, further it's going backwards it's like you're literally on a country road at night furiously driving backwards while your headlights are hitting the tree so it just it feels off entirely yeah just stuff like that where the use of the lighting shadow just kind of vaguely hinting at things that you're seeing it's Super, super effective. But anyway, yeah, this cinematographer would go on to win the Oscar for Robert Rawson's The Hustler with Paul Newman and Jackie Gleason and our girl Piper Laurie. But unfortunately, because he wasn't a member of the ASC, he wasn't properly credited for most of the American movies that he shot. And credit was just given to the camera ops instead. You know, a lot of that obviously has since been restored and he is now credited for most of these things. But yeah, that's a huge part of this, too, is you had a guy who was actively working during the German Expressionist era, which highly focused on deep shadow work and darkness, lots of exaggerated lighting and things like that. I mean, he worked with Fritz Young on Metropolis and Dainiba Lungen and stuff like that. 
you know, a lot of like early Tim Burton, it's just 100% ripping off shit like Cabin of Dr. Caligari, Vampire, and stuff like that. One of the other scenes that I find memorable, and it is one of those other like traditional horror scenes, is that moment where that woman who's been abducted is kind of waking up from the sedation. Yes. And she sees Christiane without the mask on come up and look at her. And you're seeing it from her POV. Yeah, yeah. seeing it from her POV, kind of blurry. But I thought the cinematography in that scene was amazing, and it makes her her actual face haunting and that's the only time you ever really see her without the mask on and it's so effective it even further proves the point that the amount of humanity not that she has more humanity but the amount of humanity she can convey with just her eyes with the mask yeah. on is amazing in this movie so anyway yeah that's one major factor the other thing is the score and it's interesting because this movie has a really cool haunting score and then a fucking ludicrous goofy jaunty kind of thing so the composer of this film is a dude by the name of Maurice Yare. He was first approached by George Franju to provide music for one of his doc shorts. And then the next year was like, cool, so why don't you come and score my first feature film, Head Against the Wall? And obviously he does this movie. Dude, I, I looked up this guy. He has been doing shit from like 1950 all the way to like early 2000s. Uh-huh. He <laughs> has done scores for over 150 feature films. He has won three Academy Awards for Lawrence of Arabia, which is one of the fucking greatest scores ever fucking written for any movie. He also did Dr. Zhivago, which is also an amazing score, and he did Passage to India, and he was nominated for six other fucking movies. But to give you an idea, like, just here's some of the stuff just skimming his IMDb. Lawrence of Arabia, The Train, The Collector, Dr. Zhivago, The Professionals, Gambit, The Damned, Topaz, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, The Man Who Would Be King, The Message, The Tin Drum, Top Secret, A Passage to India, Witness, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Enemy Mine, The Mosquito Coast, Fatal Attraction, Gorillas in the Mist, Dead Poet Society, Ghost, Jacob's Ladder, and Fearless. Dude has done music in every fucking genre you can think of. He's worked with every major director for the most part. Dude has had as good a career as you possibly could have. You know, again, won three Oscars, yeah. and this was his fucking second movie. That's what blew my mind is to go from Lawrence of Arabia to Jacob's Ladder in 1990 fucking insane yeah. yeah so both of those elements are super fucking interesting and i think if you had anybody else this movie would be significantly different like i think with more traditional cinematography this movie would not be nearly as effective and not just traditional like knowing how to manipulate the imagery where you're going from this very heightened deep shadows intense lighting surrealist kind of creepiness where christiana's floating around 
around in this white gown with her mask on looking like a fucking ghost to the very like raw static camera matter of fact watching a doctor peel somebody's face off it takes a good eye and it takes knowing how to kind of work an audience to be able to really put that together effectively well and then to have the score and again i i really do feel like that more manic score you hear in the beginning and kind of throughout the movie from time to time is it it feels just so circus like to me and it's so effective like let's go see the sideshow also makes it like a little more tragic when you think of what the monster is going to be in this movie and christiana is so likable and sympathetic and like ethereal and the doctor is not yeah (laughs) the doctor being like yeah so did you have anything else you wanted to say or should we like go to her performance as as christian now let's let's just get into talking about the cast yeah so yeah i guess we can start with christian played by edith scob she was kind of discovered by George Franju. She was in his first movie, Head Against the Wall, and then she would later go on to be in Therese and Judex. Later, much later in her career, she was in Brotherhood of the Wolf and Holy Motors, which is one of my other favorite surreal fucking weird French art films. So she worked with the director a good bit. He was very taken with her as an actress. But yeah, she's amazing in this movie. She's very ethereal. There is just something so unsettling about her, but also so sympathetic at the same time. Like she does a great job of balancing those two things. Yeah. And uh, like, honestly, I, I can't think of a better way to describe what she's like in this movie than this paragraph from the article on Criterion. Again, this is Eyes Without a Face, the Unreal Reality, written by David Collot. It was hardly the kind of role likely to attract a major star, Christian. Like everyone else in the film, has little dialogue and her face is concealed. Yet this fragile, doomed creature is the true star of the movie, the eyes without a face. Skipping ahead a little bit. Yes, Scob is beautiful and vulnerable, but beyond that, she has an intangible air of mystery about her. Franju said of her, she is a magic person. She gives the unreal reality. That is such a good descriptor of what she is, but still, even that doesn't do justice until you actually watch the movie and see how she's acting, because her physical performance is impeccable, but even just the line delivery she has is so real and sympathetic and tragic when she's begging for death and and everything like that. And then kind of to see her slow transformation into kind of being mentally broken from like being trapped in this house and seeing what her father and his assistant have been doing to innocent women to finally like the breaking out scene stabbing the assistant and releasing the dogs and just wandering off because like again she's kind of like mentally been fucked but kind of like the witch this is such a like fuck yes kind of ending with her kind of wandering out into the woods with the doves all flying around and like that's such a magical ending you don't know or don't care of like what's going to actually happen to her now because like this is what really matters is she's free but just the amount of emotion she can convey with that fucking mask on is insane because that mask is completely expressionless you can only see her eyes and if we want to talk about the legacy that this movie has had 
John Carpenter, and granted, he did it in the John Carpenter like way of, yeah, I mean, I think I got it from this, yeah. but he mentions the way I formed the Michael Myers mask is, I think it came from the old movie Eyes Without a Face. But it is, it is that Michael Myers-esque, just no expression on the mask whatsoever, and the amount of humanity she's able to still portray is fucking insane. And then, like, you do actually see what she could look like when they do the first operation, and at first it, it seems successful, but then, like, you see the denigration start to occur, yeah. and you see what she actually looks like without the mask, um, and with the face at least temporarily fixed. And she is, like, she is beautiful, like, she's ethereal and almost otherworldly, but it's still not as effective as when she's actually wearing the mask and had them humanity she's she's portraying then. Yeah, totally. Next person, we have Pierre Brasseur as Dr. Genesier. He was in Port of Shadows and Children of Paradise, which at the time, Children of Paradise was the fucking be-all, end-all, epic French movie, right? So it's that interesting flex of, I'm going to take one of the most well-regarded French big letter A actors and pull him into this movie. And so it was kind of one of those, like, let me give my movie some credibility. Again, if we're trying to, like, elevate the horror genre in the minds of critics and the audiences, let's get somebody legit in the movie. And this was the actor for that. He was in Head Against the Wall, like I mentioned earlier, the first movie from the director, but he was also in Spotlight on a Murder. So he's kind of the main antagonist of this overall. And it's interesting because he is definitely not necessarily your like stereotypical villain. He is very much a fucking fringe dad seeing the scene where they're burying the body in the crypt and he's out there in like fucking velvet pants and a turtleneck and like dress <laughs> shoes. Of course, you're dressed like a fucking dad who is a medical doctor. But I think that's kind of what makes him like even more effective as a villain because yeah, totally. he's otherwise just like dad. But uh, again, like the idea of the father knowing best is still more effective than putting a mask on him and having him run around with a knife. Well, also too, just the fact that he is an unrepentant asshole lacking any drop of self-awareness egomaniac the scene where he's called down to the morgue to identify this body right so they find the first girl no face they call him and they're like this could be your daughter dot 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 because she's been missing but we also have this other guy who thinks it could be his daughter and of course we know this is the body that they dumped in the beginning of the movie so the doctor just kind of covers his tracks and says yep that's uh that's my daughter for sure that's definitely my daughter meanwhile this other poor dad is outside like are you 100% sure, man, my daughter's been missing? Devastated. And it is obviously his daughter that they fucking killed. Yeah. (laughs) Which that brought me to a whole other question I asked Heather was just like, how does body identification work when you just walk and say, yep, that's definitely them. Like from a legal standpoint, how hard and firm is that? Anyway, what he says to the other father, basically something along the lines of, I can't believe the nerve you have. Your daughter is somewhere out there, possibly. You at least have hope where I know my daughter is dead. How dare you confront me in this way? Just like, what a fucking dick. And that's an asshole thing to say, period. But then to know that, oh, you're also just lying about this whole thing. God damn it. What a shithead. And you were the one who murdered his daughter. Yeah, yeah. you're the one that murdered her. Like, such an asshole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just such an unrepentant asshole in this movie. And it's kind of fun. Well, it, it, he treats everyone, like you were saying, like dogs. Yes. He has the dogs who he's a total fucking prick to, just using them for his experience. Man, those dogs hate him, too. Yeah. The, when, the, when the dog catcher brings him that German shepherd, that German shepherd is just like, nah, fuck you, man. 
and I don't like you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, like, you have his assistant who, you're right, he also treats kind of like a dog. And then even his daughter, again, his daughter exposes him by calling herself his perfect guinea pig to, like, perfect the surgery. Speaking of the assistant, again, Louise, she is played by Alita Valley. She was a very well-known Italian actress at the time, which there is a line in the movie which doesn't really register to us being American English speakers. We don't necessarily pick up on some of the nuances in the language, but they say in the movie, oh, she's a foreigner. She's a foreigner. Yeah, yeah. she was an Italian actress. She was in a shit ton of Italian movies before this one. Like, this is actually kind of later in her career, which, look her up on Google Images. Talk about a fucking smoke show earlier in her career. <laughs> but she was in The Parroting Case with Gregory Peck. She's in Carol Reed's The Third Man, which that movie's, you know, fucking amazing. It's one of my all-time favorites. And she worked with a ton of the fucking big European directors like Chabrol and Visconti. She was also in 1900. And here's where, like, the rest of her horror cred jumps in. She is fucking Miss Tanner in Suspiria. Okay. She is also in The Killer Nun. And she shows back up in Inferno, which was Argento's part two in the Mother trilogy. She had a long, very interesting career. And yeah, again, her character is super fucking interesting to me because she's just the absolute opposite of everything that you expect from that type of character. It's one of those things like it's always interesting, I guess, to explore the idea of a marginalized person who is assisting in victimizing other marginalized people. We don't really find out firm details about her backstory, but we know she was injured somehow. We don't find out how. And we know that the doctor, in air quotes, fixed her face. And we don't really know what any of that situation was. You get the idea that maybe they're lovers, maybe they're not. You don't know what the situation is, but you get that something is off with her. Something's fucked up about her and her relationship with the doctor. It's almost like idolization. There seems like some idea of attraction there, but I think it is really is just like you were saying, cult-like mentality, idolization. Yeah, but yeah, just the idea that, you know, again, she is assisting in capturing the these other girls and then actively harming them in an effort to fix this other part. Like she is essentially now committing purposefully. She's in every step of them. Yeah. Cause like she also is the first assist when he cuts off their faces. Yeah. She is actively perpetuating the same exact type of violence that she had inflicted on her to other women, whether again, her accident was purposeful or not. She is now essentially passing off that trauma over and over and over to other people. Maybe that's cathartic for her. Who knows? But that whole idea is very interesting. I find her to be an incredibly interesting character in this. One more quick aside to them, really, the Doctor especially, but both of them being assholes. What's that line where he says, think of the money, think of the fame, the idea of that face switch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where he really, the Doctor especially, exposes his ass because he's not talking like, oh, think of my daughter being restored or her having a good life now. Like, no, the first thing is, Think of how this will 
will change yeah. modern medicine. As much as he tries to have all these boohoo, woe is me, oh, I'm just trying my hardest, I'm just giving up everything to make this happen. Yeah, then he fucking tells on himself with these moments where he's just like, God damn, think of the money that we could make if I like can actually get this figured out, you know? So it just completely falls apart and shows itself for what it is and shows just kind of what a nakedly ego-driven person he is, ultimately. As far as the rest of the cast goes, the first victim that we actually see, like, have her face removed, Edna, she is played by Juliette Maniel. She was in a bunch of Chabrol stuff like Ophelia and Bluebeard and The Cousins, most notably, which 1000% I am convinced that is the movie that influenced the fucking Arrested Development joke about that artsy French movie that Michael Sarah keeps trying to sneak into because he thinks it's going to be like super sexy and really it's just boring and artsy and it's called like Le Cousins Dangerous or something. <laughs> and obviously it's fully reflecting his infatuation with his own cousin. Hey, do you remember that French movie we tried to sneak into once? You know, Dangerous Cousins? No, I, uh, why did we? Why? Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't remember that. No. George well, Michael remembered little... very well. In fact, he oh, currently oh, had a copy oh. of the DVD hidden in his sock you... drawer. Kind of. Why do you ask? Beatrice Altariba plays the second victim, Paulette, uh, the one that gets away at the end. She was in an early version of Les Miserables. She is also in this fucking awesome Western called Cemetery Without Crosses that I saw a while back. And then finally, the police inspector, Perot, is played by Alexander Rignault, which dude has like 200 credits. And this is where, like, no matter how much shit I've seen, right, I've seen more movies than like 90% of people. I have seen more pre-1980, pre-1960s movies than majority of people. Jesus fucking Christ looking through somebody's IMDb and I'm like, oh there's 200 French movies in this guy's CV that like I have not seen and know nothing about. Literally the only thing that I recognized was he's in some of the Fantomas movies, which were like these serialized crime fighter basically like early French superhero movies. That's like the only thing from his entire filmography that I actually recognized recognized so anyway yeah that's kind of a run through of the cast and i guess the last thing we'll talk about you know we already mentioned some of like how this movie was received but what's interesting like we mentioned is the turnaround that happens 20 years later yeah. and we've seen this over and over again how you know it takes a decade it takes 20 years sometimes even for these movies to like finally find their audience and have impact and then all of a sudden it's like oh this was always a classic john carpenter's the thing was always this fucking groundbreaking revolutionary hit meanwhile it tanked at the box office it kind of set his career back and you had Chris at the time literally calling it pornographic right but yeah when this was re-released in 86 for the 50th anniversary of the Cinematheque, all of a sudden all these European critics were falling over themselves to talk about how amazing this movie is. Whatever. And like you mentioned, it's interesting because it was <laughs> such a like moderate hit in Europe when it came out. But then when it came out in the States two years later, like you said, they dubbed it, they edited it, they retitled it the Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. What? So stupid. Yeah, they paired it with this carny freak show two-headed monster movie called The Manster. Not since the cabinet of Dr. Caligari have critics been so enthusiastic. Never before have audiences been so terrified. Never again will you experience a tale of terror to compare with the horror chamber of Dr. Faustus. Ah! 
didn't the tagline they used in the U.S. too, like, it's like Tennessee Williams mixed with another movie or something Basically, like that? yeah. Like, miss the point completely? Here is a strange and fascinating motion picture that the London Observer compared with the ghastly elegance that often suggests Tennessee Williams in one of his more abnormal moods. A mature horror film that the Paris critics called worthy of the great horror classics of our time. Starring Pierre Brazer as the depraved scientist who used beautiful women in the most frightening way imaginable. Alida Valley as the accomplice who procured the young girls he needed so desperately. Juliette Magnel as the innocent victim of a madman's perversity. The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. Motion picture as fascinating as it is fantastic, as unusual as it is shocking, as frightening as anything you will ever see on a motion picture screen. Kind of the same thing. The movie's first fully in its uncut original version released in the U.S. in 2003. It's that late that this movie is like actually here and available. Criterion has had it for years and years at this point. I mean, basically since like 2004, I think it's been like a criterion title. I have the Blu-ray of it somewhere packed up in this house. So, I mean, yeah, the the nice thing is, I mean, this movie is very accessible now. I mean, you can get the Criterion Blu-ray of it. It's been out for a decade. It's still in print because it's just one of those perennial Criterion titles. Uh, It's currently streaming on the Criterion channel, and it is streaming on HBO Max right now because there's a shit ton. That's how I watched it. Of classic WB-adjacent and Criterion-adjacent stuff that's on. It's also how we watch Persona. Yeah. And uh, like the other thing I was going to comment on, you know, it's going to be like a hashtag. This is cinema type of movie. I'm Ron Howard. And this is when the first thing you see when you start streaming it is Janus films in black and white. Yeah. Any any Janus films, you know, you're in for a good time. But yeah, I mean, obviously, this movie has influenced a ton of stuff since we already joked about the Billy Idol song and the influence this movie had on, you know, Halloween and Michael Myers, but fucking face off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so Jess Franco did not just one, but like two riffs on this back in the day. Uh, Faceless from 1988 is kind of the most specific. I am remaking this movie kind of attempt from him. And then, yeah, we have face off from fucking John Woo, which also features a lot of white doves. Karen Crow did Vanilla Sky. Almodovar did The Skin I Live In, which that is also like a very interesting modern riff on it, but it goes in a very different direction. And that gets me to the last thing that I want to talk through real fast. Fucking Scalpel from (laughs) 1977. Yeah. This is beauty. This is the beast. (laughs) Descend with them into a world of terror. Gladly, your daddy is dead, which is what I'm celebrating tonight. I wonder why he hated you so much. I do the devil's work. I change the faces that God intended. I cater to man's vanity and to his lust. God, look out! Girl you just brought in. What do you think happened to her? She looks like somebody worked her over and tried to destroy her face. They succeeded. The rest of your face is mostly silicone, solid and liquid. Ever since you started these operations, there has been something going on in your head, and it ain't medical. How would you like to have this face? What the hell for? Would two and a half million dollars be sufficient incentive? I want no trouble. Don't be any trouble. Look, I can teach you everything you need to know. I mean, her mannerisms. I got tape recordings of Heather's voice. She'll study photographs of the family. Anyway, and you're only going to have to impersonate her twice. Heather! 
Hello, cousin Margaret. Who'd have thought you'd come back looking so beautiful? Oh, come back at all. And you have yet to introduce me to your little friend. Hi, Heather. This is Jane. Jane, this well, is Heather. Jane what? Doe. Jane Doe. Has it ever occurred to you what fun we could have with my daddy? Doesn't she, Philip? I didn't ask him how he was going to do it. I told him it's going to be fast and it's going to be painless. You too will feel the cutting edge of terror in Scalpel. Don't let Dr. Reynolds get his hands on you. So the only <laughs> reason why I want to talk through this for a minute. Also named False Face, mind yes. you. The only reason why I want to bring this up, which first of all, Scalpel is easily available. There is an Arrow Blu-ray of it that is available. I watched it for free on Tubi, and I think there was maybe one commercial break. Yeah, it's free on Tubi. It's easy to find streaming. Anytime that Arrow has their like $3 iTunes sales, like you can buy this for 3 bucks. The reason why I bring this up it is the only other movie directed by John Grismer, who also directed our favorite Blood Rage that we fucking discuss every Thanksgiving. Cue the theme of Blood Rage right here. Yeah, and Aaron, because you've brought up Scalpel yes. on one of our Blood Rage episodes because you actually watched it and you talked about it back then. I watched it out of curiosity and only made the connections afterward that it's the same guy who did Blood Rage. And I will say, this movie is way better made than Blood Rage. It is. It is yeah. super sleazy and weird and fucked up. It is. But it is exactly the kind of Southern Gothic take on this exact same story that I find to be really <laughs> fucking fascinating. Listeners, Aaron texted me and said, watch Scalpel slash False Face in preparation for Eyes Without a Face so we can like, I said, watch it if you had two. time. This is supplemental <laughs> and viewing. I, and I did. And I had time, so I did watch it. And that's why I didn't bring this up during our recommendations because there is a weird through line of Eyes Without a Face to this because this movie is absolutely riffing on Eyes Without a Face, but in such a much more like problematic, transgressive, yes. sleazy-ass way. And you're right. This movie is better made movie than Blood Rage. Granted, I still like Blood Rage more. I think Blood Rage is more of a fun movie. But yes, this movie is actually better than I was expecting it to be. But it is so fucked up and sleazy in yeah. so many ways, especially like father-daughter relationships oh, yeah. as far as that goes. Right. And like, yeah, thanks, Aaron. Me being a father of a girl. <laughs> Love that you uh, told me to watch this. So. so let's not beat around the bush. Same idea. It is a father who is a plastic surgeon. His daughter goes missing in air quotes. And the whole deal is he married a woman who had a shitload of family money. And he turns out that this guy is American psycho sociopath, actually. Oh, absolutely. The best scenes in this movie to me were like when he's just talking about what happened to a character, but it's then showing what actually happened to that character. Yes. And it's him straight up fucking murdering them. You're hearing his side of the story, but then you're actually seeing what happened. And it's the what, complete what opposite. Yeah. And the one where I laughed out loud, even though it is kind of a fucked up scene, is when he's talking about how her mother died. 
died and how she drowned in the lake because she couldn't swim. And it's just him rowing by, waving at her as she's like going under, like yeah. screaming for help. I wish the movie had a little bit more of that energy, but yes, it was effective. So what he discovers is he cannot touch any of this family fortune because it's all willed to his daughter. And she has just disappeared. The grandfather knew how much of a fucking psycho this guy is yeah. and how much of a fuck up his actual son was. So he concocts this fucking plan where he is going to, and he gets the idea, like it just kind of happenstance comes to him, right? So we like cut across town. We see a stripper who is performing on stage, right? She gets assaulted outside of the club, like gets the shit beat out of her robbed. Completely fucks her face up, right? Already the origin is sleazy as fuck, yes. The doctor dad happens to be driving by, sees her, grabs her, and is like, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of you. I'm going to bring you to the hospital. I'm a plastic surgeon. By the way, if you had any idea of how this movie treats women, you're in for a ride, bud. Like, yeah. this, this movie is pretty fucking cruel to women, like, the whole way through. But basically, like, brings her in, does reconstructive plastic surgery, and makes her look identical to his missing daughter and then takes her to his house to recuperate and then tells her the entire fucking scheme that he has which is you're gonna pretend to be my missing daughter so that we can claim this family fortune i'll split it with you and we'll go our separate ways and then he like teaches her to be his daughter talk like her learn all these family members learn all this backstory about her life and she also was like a great piano player and all this other bullshit and the twisted fucked up thing is they start to fall for each other well not i wouldn't say fall fall is, makes it more romantic oh sounding. it's not romantic at all yeah they start just fucking each other they start villain fucking yes that's that's what happens and the woman who, who they call jane because she's a jane doe in this movie jane who's acting like his daughter she is basically identical to her and except she can't play piano like her because the actual daughter is apparently a extremely skilled really amazing piano yeah there's lots of other little things too like she's definitely got a southern accent and like she's got to kind of tamp that down and hide it yeah and like it's kind of interesting because by the end she's not necessarily the villain like she's also gets kind of fucked over the twist is they start going down this path and they start convincing all the rest of the family and the authorities that this is the daughter she's come back look at her and right after they kind of pull off this whole scheme the the real daughter actually shows back up and that completely throws this entire thing upside down because then it becomes do i turn my dad in do i blow this whole thing open who is this other woman that my dad is fucking that she's pretending to be me like it's twisted talk about like no one really being good in this movie which granted like i'd say the daughter i, I guess is that she doesn't do anything explicitly evil or anything like that she's just kind of a victim in this movie but like the dad the doctor starts kind of treating jane with disdain when they try and live all three of them together trying to live together for a few days which is also fucking yeah. weird but like you could tell that heather his actual daughter doesn't like jane and doesn't like her being there and then the doctor starts having contempt for jane being there because he's giving all his attention to his actual daughter now but then at the same time jane is kind of suggesting that they deal with heather in a way so like they don't get exposed and lose all yeah. the money and so then the doctor is going to go and hire a hitman and he does the double cross where he's going to have the hitman kill Jane. Yeah. It goes all kinds of fucking bananas uh, but of course because like he's been fucking Jane who looks like his daughter there is some really sleazy weird problematic 
dad attracted to daughter stuff that this movie yeah. goes into that's really uncomfortable and really f- fucked up and so like yeah we could do a classy like hashtag cinema i'm james cameron and this is double feature of persona and eyes without a face or you could do eyes without a face and then scalpel and see like where someone who made blood rage got inspiration like what they did with that inspiration i think scalpel is so much more of an interesting pairing because scalpel it is takes the idea of eyes without a face to the next level of what if the dad actually could do what he says he was going to do yeah so it's it's kind of that next layer to the entire grift right Again, extremely fucked up sleazy movie, but I find it to be kind of fucking wildly entertaining and batshit with how insane it is. And it's so many of the same exact themes as Eyes Without a Face that I think it makes a great companion piece. And again, it's directed by the guy who did Blood Rage, which we love. Well, there's even a through line from this movie to Blood Rage, because like Blood Rage also is dealing with dual identity yeah. between the two twins. Like, So that's how you pair this up. You pair Eyes Without a Face with Scalpel, and then you pair Persona with Blood Rage. Blood Rage, yeah. <laughs> that works, though, technically. Because also Persona deals with psychology a lot, and so does Blood Rage. Yep. In a way. That's going to be our first Patreon, like, double feature (laughs) set. We're doing it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Cool. Well, uh, I think that is all we got for this episode. Yeah. Thank you for bearing with us. This is kind of a long one, even though it's just Aaron and I, but, like, there's a lot you need to talk about with Eyes Without a Face. It is one of those very important moments in cinema history, especially for horror. And legitimately, you will see this on a lot of best international films ever made best french films ever made best horror films ever made whatever you will see this on a ton of like best of lists this is an important piece of capital c papa scorsese cinema i'm martin scorsese and this is But it's absolutely a movie worth checking out because everything thematically will resonate today. It is a very interesting movie to look at. The performances are great. And like, it's an hour and a half. Give it your time. It is absolutely worth it. It's easy to get a hold of. Definitely recommend checking it out. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, cool. Well, uh, if that is it, then that's another episode in the can for Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast where me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cravenly co-host, Derek, uh, will discuss horror movies and their themes and discuss just how effective they are for newcomers to horror as well as horror junkies like myself. You can listen to and download all of our future and past episodes on whatever podcatcher you choose uh we are on apple podcasts spotify stitcher podbean amazon i mean we're on basically everything so definitely check us out please rate and review specifically on apple Podcasts. it seems where it gets most traction thank you all for your support there as well as always we have our spotify music playlist pinned to the top of our twitter 
which, by the way, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Watch If You Dare as well. So definitely engage there. Shoot us any kind of feedback or messages or questions that you have. Yeah, please. And then, once again, big thank you to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for providing the music bumps, the beginnings and ends of all of our episodes. You can find his actual music on Bandcamp at Party Gator, Opossums, Big Clown. He's got all kinds of side stuff there. So check his stuff out, throw him a couple of bucks. And with that, the last thing I have to say is, Derek, I'm all out of hope. One more bad break could bring a fall. I don't know about you, but when I'm far from home, don't call me on the phone to tell me you're alone. It's easy to deceive, it's easy to tease, but hard to get release. Yes, this is a song about nutting. My face frightens me. My Sally frightens me even more. <laughs>